Hey, this is Ross Bain with Roleplay Public Radio. We're here at Gen Con 2017. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, this is our game design panel. Uh, we have two very game design, very talented game designers, and myself, uh, Shane Ivey of Arc Dream Publishing, and Jeff Barber uh, of Biohazard. Uh, what? Biohazard Gaming or what? Biohazard Games. Biohazard Games. Sorry. Um, and we're here to talk about game design, and this is going to be a very like focused on your uh, questions on game design. Um, I can talk. I mean, Shane obviously uh, not only publishes uh, Delta Green, uh, Godlike, many other fine role playing games. He's also a very talented scenario writer. Uh, after running Observer Effect twice, uh, it is w- which he wrote. Uh, I'm I'm very impressed with that. And of course, Jeff Barber designed Blue Planet. Uh, a not quite transhuman sci-fi RPG, yeah. but yeah, In the, at the time it was. Yeah, uh, very groundbreaking. It turned twenty years old last month, so you know, there's, we need to span it that gap a little bit. All right, uh, it's aged well enough, but yeah. there are some things that need to be changed. And uh, more recently, Upwind, uh, a fantasy storytelling role-playing game that will be coming out hopefully soon, uh, and I'll be writing a campaign for it, which has been our, our, our actual play. Um, that I'm way behind on writing, but I, I, I'm making progress. <laughs> um, so don't ask about keeping schedules. That's probably not a strong... Well, at least not me. Uh, tell hilarious stories about schedules. <laughs> uh, and, of course, I've uh, written some material for Art Dream, uh, Monsters, Other Childish Things, uh, Curriculum of Conspiracy, Road Trip, uh, I've published my own game, Base Raiders, uh, superhero uh, dungeon crawling, um, a fate RPG, and um, a bunch of other stuff. Uh, and I don't want to list all of it. Uh, oh, I've written for Eclipse Phase too. Um, and yeah, so that that's sort of a li- little bit of our credentials. Um, but I guess we could talk a little bit before we get any questions, like what what. Each of us is doing game design wise. Um, what you're working on? Uh, so, Shane, do you want to start? Uh, yeah, I'm. I'm mostly focused right now on Delta Green. This is audio, so the audience at home doesn't see my my very lovely, ancient, decrepit Delta Green T-shirt. <laughs> and uh, uh, yeah, Delta Green is a. If you don't know, it's a modern day Lovecraftian investigative horror game. So you're playing agents of this sort of secret group that are investigating these horrible things and suffering exposure to them in order to prevent everyone else from suffering exposure to them. Uh, so that's Delta Green. It's a role-playing game. It's won tons of awards over the years, and, and we're very, very, very proud of it. And it's and every time we do something new, it's incredibly late. So <laughs> the latest thing that we're doing for Delta Green that's incredibly late is going to be super awesome um, in a couple of months. That's the main book, right? Yeah, it's like an expanded version of the... Of the, of the agent's handbook. Yeah. 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 It'll have all the lore and everything. And the manuscript right now is, what, 550 pages? Jeez. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, if you back Dennis Detwiller's Patreon, um, you can get access to a raw, unedited manuscript of the of the, the, the game. I haven't read all of it yet. Uh, it's 540. I don't, I don't blame you. Yeah. So we're, we're looking at a 700-page book. Uh, when it's all said and done, probably unless you uh, yeah, I don't know. unless you cut it a lot. I mean, it, it yes, that's 
that, that that's probably a little bit too into the yeah. in, into the details, you know. But yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, I don't think it's going to be that big in layout, but it's 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 stocky. Are you writing? Uh, you've also written stuff for uh, the One Ring. Are you working on any scenarios or any other? Materials? Not right now. Not right now. It was one of my great regrets in life. Is about a year ago, I, I had to tell Cubicle Seven. I've got to stop committing to writing things for, for you because I've got so much so much I'm overcommitted to on Delta Green because I absolutely loved writing for the One Ring. It was fantastic. So I could talk about Tolkien stuff like as its whole other thing and, and keep myself entertained if nobody else. But yeah, the One Ring is really really cool. I wrote this whole I wrote a whole a lot of the Force Lords of Rohan that came out um, a while back that was up for the Ennies last night and. Um, and uh, and a good bit of things for the, of the Rivendell book. And mm-hmm. There's a there's a Rohan focused scenario like campaign collection that they're working on now that I that I wrote a, a good bit for. I don't know how much of my work is going to survive finally right. pulling that together, but yeah, it's cool. Um, are you writing any Delta Green material? Like any new oh, scenarios? Yeah. Okay, sure. yeah, any? yeah, we've got we've got a new a scenario called Extremophilia that went out through the Patreon a while back for playtesting that I'm pulling together now. Um, that you wrote. Just, yeah. Oh, cool. Uh, we I ju- we just published one called Reverberations that, that I wrote that was uh, that we published through Patreon and now it's published for the for public consumption. It's a very okay. brief like one session thing, ma- mainly for new players. You know. Oh, cool. Um, and uh, and yeah, I'll be writing a lot of um, big books like Deep State and um, Falling Towers, which will be a New York City campaign set um, in. Uh, I don't know, 2002, 2003, 2004, something around the early 2000s. Oh, that's dealing with the fate, right? Yeah, this the sort criminals, of super yeah. secretive criminal syndicate called the fate, or the network, if you're not really in the know. Yeah. Yeah, and Delta Green finally getting the chance to, to take them on because they've been so uh, unnaturally untouchable over the years. All right. Yeah. Uh, Jeff, uh, how's Upwind doing? It's doing good. Um... Uh, the day before I came to con, I got the first draft of the interior layout of the core book, uh, and it's, if I say so myself, it's gorgeous. Uh, <laughs> Joe, uh, James Stowe and Eileen Miles, uh, the artist and the layout artist, have done a fantastic job, and I can't wait to share it with everybody. Um, and uh, it should go into production and you know, actually printing in the next month or two. Mm-hmm. Um, the campaign book is being laid out as we speak. That was uh, part the Grand Amplifier. The Grand Amplifier campaign that was part of the yeah. Kickstarter. Um, it's being laid out um, as we speak. Uh, the cards are done. They're beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, they've each got a little picture of their specified location, some descriptive text, but the part I like is that they've each got a coordinate so you can lay the cards out on this coordinate system and create your own map of the setting. Mm-hmm. Um, a little gimmick built in. Um, it... Speaking of schedules, we were we were very worried. Uh, I, I don't know how many of you are aware. My publishing partner was Stuart Wick um, of White Wolf fame, and he uh, passed yeah. away unexpectedly in June. Um, I was one of about 27 different little publishers that had teamed up with him in the last year. Uh, so it's had a not only is his loss tremendous tragedy for his family, but the gaming industry has been an innovator and a leader for decades. Um, but it was also a big deal for all these little publishers that he had teamed up with with Nocturnal Media. Um, so we were, there was concern that there would be ramifications for that and a big delay, but I think we're going to be pretty close to on target for, for our schedule, which which is, is really good. Good. So I'm hoping that people will be able to see, uh, the backers will certainly get the digital layout ASAP as soon as the last little tweaks are made. 
uh, and we'll do that thing where, hey, if you see any errors, let us know because we can still fix them kind of thing. Um, but then hopefully books will start getting into people's hands. They'll start coming off the presses in October sometime. Mm -hmm. So as long as it takes to ship from there, that's the goal. Are you any game design work right now, or are you pretty much focused on your day job? Or the uh, well, it's all production stuff now. Okay, so there's yeah. been a lot of attention to that. Um, and if that might be good sources of questions, is things yeah. about like art direction, um, dealing with layout mm -hmm. and printers. Um, it took probably a full work day's worth of my time just to assign the art to its location in the book, mm -hmm. which is things you never think about. I want to write a game. You know, the first thing you think is, no, where is this piece of art going to go, right? Um, and that's that's just really a more of a time management thing. Uh, and, and there's ways to plan ahead for that to make it a little easier when you come up against it. Yeah, um, But definitely. those are, you know, some things I'm dealing with these days. Yeah. Um, and uh, Caleb of RPPR uh, could not make it to Gen Con, but right now he is, of course, very focused on red markets, uh, which has finally gone to the printer. Uh, so hopefully, if you haven't pre-ordered Red Markets, do it now uh, go, yeah, on Backerkit. Um, and uh, so you can get the PDF. Uh, the PDF is out for backers. And uh, so he's very excited about that. Uh, that's sort of taken care of. Uh, he's also working on a board game right now uh, called Party Foul. Uh, it's about ducks at a party. Um, so, because yeah. there's a W. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, you don't have actions; you have quactions. Uh, yeah, uh, that's really foul. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, no, it's him. Trust me, Caleb. Caleb, I know you're gonna listen. That's a ducked up idea. <laughs> Uh, uh, the other his the mix six co-host uh, Spencer is also working on it. Uh, we're probably going to do an, a game design. Uh, we're definitely going to do an episode about that in the future, where we just talk about the the board game design idea and iterating and figuring out the rules. Uh, but so that's a future thing. Uh, I can I, I've been helping them play test it, but that's about it. So I can talk a little bit about that. But uh, for me, this year. Um, I've written, I wrote about 13,000 words for Clipsface 2nd Edition, uh, all lore setting material. I haven't uh, really touched the rules. Uh, the, the, coming up with new game mechanics isn't really uh, my strong point as a designer. Um, I do what I can. Um, and then I've been trying to work on Three Beasts, uh, which is the campaign I, I put on RPPR Actual Play. And then adapting it to, uh, and then rewriting it so it can be a uh, upwind campaign, and trying to. When I wrote it, the the book itself was in a sort of rough draft kind of stage, and then going back and re, re you know, like there's been an interesting challenge of like, oh, this is how it was in the rough draft, but now it's been changed. But my might I didn't realize that, that it had been changed because I read the rough draft. I don't need to keep reading the book over and over again. Uh, so Jess has been really good about like, no, this is different now. And this is like this. And I'm like, oh, and you put all these plot hooks in the game that I use for my campaign, but then you use them in your campaign. Yeah, I planted all these <laughs> plot seeds in the core book to use in the Grand Amplifier campaign. And he picked up on most of them and started using his campaign. And it seemed like we were parallel each other a little too much. Yeah, so that was... So there's an interesting thing of writing for a game that's not out yet, uh, which is a, a, a work in progress. Of course, I've also been doing that with Red Markets. Uh, I contributed some to the Red Markets main book. Uh, I wrote a supplement on best practices, it was, which was originally going to be in the main book, but because of Link, they, they, it's been kind of going to be a separate book. 
Um, and I need, I've written a rough draft of that. I need to go back and uh, finish that off uh, at some point. Um, but fortunately, I've also finally, after years and years and years of uh, trying to struggle with it, I figured out how to make Ruin, uh, my architectural horror role-playing game, into a game that people I, that I can write and people can read and actually play instead of being like, it's a... It, it's like House of Leaves, but different. And uh, that that you can't make that into a game. Like you have to like come up with more concrete ideas. Um, so uh, uh, if any, uh, so that that's interesting. So if uh, if you have any questions about that, we can do that. So, uh, but yeah, the rest of this panel um, is uh, what you guys are having. This is to be the aim of this panel is to be helpful to you so like what do you have problems it can be uh, okay we have some questions already uh, so yeah so what do you have to, uh, we'll just go with uh, Peter first uh, who wrote a book for me uh, Boiling Point for Base Raiders yep. which there's a, a copy or two at Art Dream so yeah, buy his yeah, book, and, my book and then I get the money because I'm the publisher it's great that way uh, anyways booth 431 431 yeah I recently listened to a podcast that uh, talked about information <laughs> management and RPGs and how many don't have uh, very mm-hmm. good management of their information. Yeah, uh, they were very good to point out flaws in the information management, but there weren't many useful bullet points for a designer. Uh, as people that have designed RPGs before, with that in mind, what are some bullet points you recommend for people that are designing to be aware of information management? Can, can you can you can you clarify what you mean by information management? Uh, putting information in a way that's easily understandable to a player. Right. If I were to open up a book and just start reading it, would mm-hmm. I be able to? understand everything without having to find another location in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, so obviously there would be examples of see other page mm-hmm. for information or if something was referenced in multiple places mm-hmm. with different information in different places. Yeah. Uh, so my first thought on that, something that we've kind of tried to do over the years, is be very conscious of the order of things, Right. Start with the, the with the most foundational things, you know, pieces of the game, and then you're building on to those. And be aware of, you know, if your combat rules aren't going to happen until halfway through the book, don't spend a lot of time telling people combat things because they're not there yet. You know, because you have to, as a new reader, we all we all as as game authors, we it's it's easy to forget that some people are new to this game, right? Um, and some people are going to come into it just reading from scratch. Uh, and some people are going to come into it flipping through it without bothering to start at page one and, and read straight through to the end, right? So there's going to be a lot of see page XX no matter what you do because you've got to, be a, you've got to account for people that just like to flip and, and aren't going to read it you know, in, in the right order. So, um, so start with make sure everything's in the right order to minimize that, and then you know allow for sending people to the right place. Um, you know, uh, I met with the Posthuman Studios people uh, on Thursday, and they're talking about how for uh, Eclipse Phase Second Edition, one of the things they're going to be doing is every single topic is going to be handled in a number of two-page spreads. So, like topic X, and so they're they're trying to they were being very. Uh, conscious and aware of like word count it's like we have you know x number of words per page so like this topic is two pages you have you know 500 words or 1500 words or whatever to cover it and it has to be in you know it has to finish off a two-page spread so you don't have it overflowing or like 
you know, half a page missing or whatever. So um, they're they're being very conscious about that. And even Eclipse Bay first edition was actually pretty good, I think, about it had the, here's what, this is a really complicated setting. Here's about 80 pages of what the hell's going on and what the, the important concepts are. Then there's character creation, then there's combat, and then there's the more complex stuff like, uh, you know, uh, async powers and ego hacking, and then they have the gear at the back. Um, so that that's sort of like think about the actual layout of the book and how people see things. And this is more of a graphic designer thing, but like um, you, a lot of good RPGs will have things like sidebars to call attention to certain areas. Um, you know, just little bullet points. Of course, indexes. Clipspace, for example, they have on the on the top left of each page like a sort of like all the chapters and then the one that you're on is highlighted so you can easily flip through the book and make oh I'm in I'm in the mess chapter you know the oh I'm now in the acing chapter chapter or I'm in the gear section so like uh, you can visually figure out where you are so that's another thing uh, I'd add a couple of things I'd reinforce what he said about um, making sure that you're not front loading all this stuff before you've actually had a chance to explain it simply to yeah. support your players um, but you're going to find, as you write your own game book, depending upon how long you do it and how it develops. Uh, for example, when I did Upwind, it, I had no intention of publishing originally. It was just kind of notes for my own self. And then I was like, oh, I'll write on this because I'm interested in that. Oh, this is cool. I'll write on that. And then when the decision was made to write it, it had evolved in my mind in a certain way. So I put it all together in a, in a certain way. And then I gave it to the editor, and the editor was like, this would be much better if it was here. The players are going to read it. This. And he was reading it for the first time. So what I'm getting to is, if you can, hire an editor to do exactly that. Make my book make sense to a new reader. Yeah. Right? Um, and if you don't, even if you're not at the stage where you can hire an editor, have a spouse or a friend or another gamer read it and give you that feedback and take and multiple it. people yeah. yeah don't get don't get married to the idea that like this is the order it's going to be in let let a new reader tell you what order it should be in yeah uh, I mean yeah getting getting a couple second opinions I mean you can't proofread and you can't edit your own work you just can't so uh, and that applies also to the the information design the layout and how information is presented uh, Laura you had a question I think right don't, don't mind my minion I'm okay. sorry guys uh, that's fine I'm put that down there for later most of my question, but you to follow up. All right. What you find foundational, does that change for you between systems? Um, okay, in terms of like how, if, how it's laid out, how it's presented what in the book. Uh, yeah, I mean, how information is presented in RPG is dependent on the very RPG itself. Um, if you notice, things like Powered by the Apocalypse games are very much like, here's the player, here's the playbooks for each player. You know, and that because that's the most important thing is like what the players can do. Uh, well, they give a couple pages of setting, and then the GM section is always the back half. I mean, to, to, the, they're very formulaic. To yeah. me, what you're looking for is what what are the play what what are the players going to be interacting with the most, right? That's that's what players have to be able to internalize really quickly. You know, yeah. Um, what's going to come up all the time for your for your characters? So with with Delta Green, the sort of the key moving parts in player characters, it's a fairly traditional, you know, Call of Cthulhu-esque game. So the key moving parts are your stats and your sanity and hit points and your skills, mm -hmm. right? And they each serve sort of different purposes um, in play. But those are, and then there's another thing called bonds, which are sort of an offshoot of the sanity, right? So, but those four big things 
we want to make sure that within the first, I don't know however it wound up, but you know, within the first 15 or 20 pages, you've got your head wrapped around those core concepts because that's what you're going to be doing throughout play as the player, right? That's how you're going to be interacting with the fiction at the table. So I, well, there's there's different trains of thought on that, and a lot of people have different preferences. I, I personally, I much prefer sort of front-loading the... the um, the rule, the mechanical elements that the players are going to be interacting with, but in a way that evokes the setting, the genre, the fiction, you know, the, the tone and feel of play without having to have players over, you know, learn too much all at once, right? So, again, with Delta Green, just an example, that first, the first couple of chapters are fairly brief they're for, they're on summarizing what's going on. So we have an initial, whatever, four pages just as little sub very small paragraph long bullet points about what is a delta green you know mm-hmm. what is insanity you know and the, the very basics and then a few pages on the, those mechanical bits but those are interspersed with um, examples from gameplay that are purposefully set up so they don't bring in new elements by accident that aren't going to confuse you um, and little one page half page bits of fiction you know which we again wrote very very carefully so they weren't going to be like us indulging ourselves with 30 pages of a novella before you can actually play a game that's, that sounded really shitty I'm it sorry. was really popular in the 90s but, but yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> and um, but I, I don't know do you see what I'm getting at yeah, yeah. right so um, so, so that that was that's that was my goal, right? Was to instead of putting a ton of setting information up front, you kind of I, I want to get the players invested in what they're going to be doing at the table. Um, all of that setting background, in my in my experience, for my preferences as a gamer, um, I'm not always sold on that right away, right? I'm not always invested in reading the gigantic thing of setting. And that sounds like an awful lot of work to me if I haven't already been convinced that I'm in love with this thing. Mm-hmm. So that that's sort of my approach to it, is I want to give people ways to get invested in it and get engaged with what's happening at the table and then start giving them tools to learn more and more about the world because those are additional tools in which they can interact with the, with yeah. the, with the fiction and generate the fiction at the table. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, I have the, uh, I guess it's an object lesson. Uh, <laughs> Because uh, when we did the first edition of Blue Planet, we didn't know what we were doing. It's a 400-page book. Um, I'm a setting guy. Mechanics are not really the thing yeah. I enjoy. Um, and so I put all the setting at the beginning. So there was like 90% of the book was setting, and then there's 10%. And, and I think of all the critique, all the critiques that we got about layout were just about that, you know, nothing else. So I guess that's good. About, about well, the, why didn't you put the mechanics first? Why are they at the back of the book? Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, so when we did second edition, we put them at the front of the book, and everyone seemed to like that. Mm. I don't know what my problem is because in the Upwind book, I put mechanics back at the end again. Um, <laughs> and I'm just realizing that, as you guys pointed out, I'm still a setting guy. It's also a narrative game, so maybe they're less, yeah. less critical. But anyway, well, if you like mechanics, start reading from the back. Yeah, and I mean that's an interesting thing. Is as a game designer, you also want to sort of get a get a depth. I don't know. Find ways to get a depth at sort of recognizing what you love and recognizing when you can exploit that and make that make everyone else love it too, and when 
it's kind of an anchor and the thing that you love not everyone else has a reason to love yet you know right so yeah. you may need to you may need to flip flip things around and reorder things you know in so in, in that way um, I mean the, uh, the Iron Kingdoms game yeah right? I, I love the Iron Kingdoms setting you know and but every every book that I've ever gotten for Iron Kingdom so I don't know I don't have all of them but the big books right especially mm-hmm. back in the D20 days you know it was like 250 pages of setting details like down to astrological stuff you know and stars and the sun and the moon and um, and all this super intense detail that you had to kind of flip through to actually get to the bits that are likely to matter to you at the table over and over again because honestly the the, the 15 pages on astronomy in that world are going to come up maybe one time in play, right? But how often are they really going to come up, right? So it always, it, I found myself, you know, once I got, once I started learning the setting and enjoying it, you know, then I would go back and I'd read that stuff. Yeah. But it always, it felt to me a little backwards, you know, and it mm-hmm. felt like the, it's, you know, whatever. But I don't know. Again, that's, well, again, it's it's also preferences. Everybody has their own thing, and there are some settings that are so in, that are so um, I don't know. De- de- some games that are so dependent mm-hmm. on a setting and on what makes a setting in, interesting and fascinating that you may have a very good reason for front loading that because that's the reason the players are there. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, like Eclipse Race. I think. The, a lot of games I have also seen split up setting info. So, like Eclipse Race, for example, there's player setting info, character creation mechanics, and then at the back there's GM setting information. And so, because that that design also gives, like, if you're a player, stop reading here. Uh, is I've seen that in a lot of games, um, and the world is about to end apparently. Uh, it's been nice knowing. Uh, so. <laughs> I've wasted my life. <laughs> uh, what am I doing? Yeah. So, um, that, call it Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, there, there, there are, there are many options. Um, think about like who needs that information. If it's the players, you know, and GM needs sort of the common info. But if it's information only the GM needs, that can be sort of put. You know, at the back, you know, a less important area of the book. So, uh, yeah, good question. Uh, next, let's get some other people. Uh, yeah, kind of like build off that. When you are beginning designing uh, a game system, especially as a more narrative focused game system, yeah, yeah, do you approach it from I have a great idea for a world and more, or do you approach it from I have a great mechanical idea and you build off of that? It's a, yeah, oh, sorry. okay. I was, Sorry. Uh, it depends on what your great idea is, I guess. Yeah. Right? If you feel it's a great idea, it's going to probably be one or the other. Obviously, that'll be your starting point. Uh, yeah, I've seen designers who do it. From, it can be approached from either way. Uh, usually, the genesis of an RPG is like either I've got a great setting that I want to turn into a game, or I've got a great game mechanic that could turn into a game. You know, like games like Fiasco or, you know, Apocalypse World or whatever. Apocalypse World doesn't have a setting per se, it's just post apocalyptica. Um, and but it had great game mechanics. Uh, and Fiasco, same thing, great game mechanics. Uh, but then you have games like Eclipse Face, like I've got a great setting, and then we need mechanics for it. Um, so there's no wrong way to do it. Either way works. It was uh, actually an interesting question in regards to Upwind because I started the Upwind idea as a setting independent game. In fact, I th- anybody ever played Big Eyes Small Mouths? Yes. Yeah. I, I, I said, I need an anime setting because this is an anime game, and I used that. 
uh, and it, you know it functioned. Um, and then I had this idea completely independently for mechanics uh, using playing cards, and I was developing that separately. And then when I realized that the four elements in the setting that were sort of the, the supernatural part fit the four suits of cards, that I saw, oh, hey, I can put these together, and now they're inextricable. Like they've kind of melded together in a genetic way that they can't tell them apart. Mm-hmm. And they did start as completely separate ideas that ended up coming together. Yeah, I, I, mean, I, th- I, I think it's. I think that's another sort of personal thing. Like some people, so, some designers have a real head for mechanics, and they sort of see the world through game rules, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and and some don't. Like I general, I don't general. Like I'm, I'm I'm I tend to approach things sort of fiction first, right? The the the, the setting, what I want play to feel like as an emotional thing, a sort of a visceral thing at the table, what the back and forth ought to feel like. Um, and then eventually I'll have to start forcing my brain to think in mechanical terms, and that's where things usually slow down, because I'm just not as great at that as a lot of authors I know. So, yeah. um, I would imagine that's a common thing. Yeah. If you have a room of role-playing designers and a room mm-hmm. of board game designers, I'm sure that question is going to be skewed one direction yeah. or the other. Yeah. Yeah. And you, I mean, I mean you, with enough practice, you get okay at it, you know, at, at either one. If you're mainly a mechanics person, right, with enough practice, you're going to get good at thinking in, in the sort of setting, narrative, blah, blah terms as well, and how they... Uh, and vice versa, and how they kind of interact with each other, you know. So Delta Green is our big thing right now, and um, the that game, like the game world, the way that the world affects player characters and the way that player characters affect the world around them, that all is really, really tightly intertwined with the game mechanics. You know, there's really not much separating them out. Um, if we were to play... If we, if you, if you play a game that's the Delta Green world in realms of Cthulhu, right? What's going to emerge at the table is going to have a different feel and a different tone than in the straight up, you know, role playing game the way we do it. And so that's something I'm really cognizant about because Delta Green is a game that's primarily about mood and about kind of evoking a reaction from the players on behalf of their characters, you know? And so the way that the mechanics work is huge and hugely important to that, um, for my mind. And so that's why we, we kind of took a lot of decisions the way we did yeah. in that. All right, good question. Uh, Adam? So something I've been thinking a lot about as I've been trying things through with uh, board game I yeah. talked to about last year and still yeah. pondering about that on top of anything else. Alright. Um, the way that and I think about this from something that Caleb put into Recompense. If this is your first RPG, thanks. <laughs> but this idea that there is a gradient in, in the hobby. Yeah. Um, from the, the most common, the, the, the easiest to get into because it's penetrated the mainstream culture so much, on out to the furthest ultra, like, crazy shit. Like, we're ruined me enough yeah. as it proceeds to then conquer the rest of the hobby. Yeah. Um, as designers, how important do you think it is to set expectations for first time readers who are going to come upon a game about the the degree of difference. And I don't want to talk about it's more advanced or it's more pure. Right, right. Forget all that. Yeah. The setting expectations for 
this game, you will have to become fluent with more than you would otherwise have to become fluent with. Yeah. Um... Well, yeah, I mean, there's a degree of uh, trying to, like, okay, this, like, there, there, you can sort of measure complexity in a game system, you know, if you're, if you're, if it's a phone book size, can stop a bullet, uh, and you have calculus equations, and, and yeah, you should tell people, like, this is a really complex game, uh, this is like Hero, Champion, or Phoenix, you know, Command, or whatever, um, but... You know, for one thing, any any role playing game that any of us publish is going to be a small press one. Like it's going to be people who are not casually going to discover it. Most likely, they're going to be. Uh, it's not Dungeons and Dragons in the Barnes and Noble section. You know, uh, it's going to be they backed it on Kickstarter, or a friend told them about it, or they saw it at a game store. So the, probably the people that are going to get your game are people who are already familiar with it. They're already in too deep, essentially, and you know. Um, <laughs> And uh, you you can sort of expect that, um, you know, uh, you uh, you know, in terms of like having like, oh, what is a role playing game, and how do I play, and what are these funny little plastic objects that we roll? Um, I don't think you really need to do that so much unless you're aiming the game specifically at like kids or cat, you know, new players. Um, I yeah, I tend to be like, I just assume that if you found this book, you're you're you know what you're doing. To a degree, so. But um, I don't know, Jeff. Do you put uh, it I, I agree. I kind of operate on the assumption that I'm not marketing to novices, to people that know nothing about role playing games, because th- even if people are going to find my game that have never played a game before, 90% of those people, or 98% of those people, will have. And so I need to write to the core audience. I'll, I'll, I'll write at a level I think most gamers are going to expect and appreciate and be able to flow with. Yeah. Um, but that doesn't keep me from putting a page of like, this is a role-playing game. Not as much because I think there's a new player picking it up, but because that also helps you set a tone. Like, this is what this author thinks a role-playing game is. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, when you read this, it'll inform the rest of the reading of the book. And it'll let you, as a owner of that book, say, hey friend, uh, I want to play this game with you, and this is kind of what this game is going to look like. Uh, yeah, keep in mind, your game... One thing to keep in mind as a game designer, you should never try to make a game that will be all things to all people. Uh, get, you know, one thing, don't don't make a universal system. Don't don't be like, I'm going to be... It's going to be better than GURPS. GURPS already exists, and, you know, you're not going to... You're not going to unseat it at its throne. Well, and yeah. Cypher has come out, and Cypher. Fantasy Flight has its new... Uh, Genesis, Genesis yeah. system. So, like that market is filling uh, yeah, up. And, yeah, and I think I mean that's a, that's kind of another. So whole, make a, a focus game yeah. topic, but but I mean I just I, I think from my perspective on that on the the generic system thing is I don't think there's any such thing. I mean every one of those so-called generic systems has a really distinct feel of at play. You know they yeah. all do things very differently. When you're playing Savage Worlds. You know, if you're playing steampunk Savage Worlds, you're playing steampunk Savage Worlds. If yeah. you're playing steampunk GURPS, you're playing steampunk GURPS. They're they they do different things. They have a different feel. You know, and some of them some of them feel better to me as a player at one thing than they do at other things. Yeah. Which is another reason I agree. Let's you know don't don't bother. I mean, I've gone through the toolkit phase. You know, we did a whole big ass game on that, and I wish we hadn't because it was a lot of time and trouble that we could have. Spit better. And that's a mechanical versus marketing question, right? Like, 
if you're marketing it as a generic system versus it mechanically is a generic system, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Like they all have a special feel uh, yeah, to the yeah. game, but the, they are all marketed as you can play any game you want with this. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if, and, and you, it feels like your your instinct is if I say that, then I'm going to get every gamer in the world to play, right, and right. you're not because what you're going to get is GURPS fans to play. Well, my my yeah. um, favorite games these days are the ones that irrevocably, as you were saying, intertwine the mechanics yeah. with um, the setting. Yeah, uh, I tried to do that with Upwind. I don't know where we succeeded, but. I really think that Caleb nailed it with Red Markets. I think that you can't do either one of those justice. I mean, you can play post-apocalypse zombie games, and you can play resource management games, but putting them together like he did makes that the unique game that it is. It yeah. makes it its own way of, of fun to play. Um, and that's where I think the market still has room, is to create these systems and settings that make something synergistic out of what yeah. they are. And, yeah. and, and if, if it does something well that people suddenly realize, geez, I've been wanting to play that, yeah. know, that's that's your sweet spot. I mean, yeah, look at the games that are doing well on Kickstarter. They're all f- pretty focused. Um, you know, like I read, like a couple months ago, I, I learned and ran Belly of the Beast, which is like you, you are the third generation survivor of someone who's been swallowed by a continental sized worm. <laughs> and directions are tedward or tailward, and left rib and right rib, you know, and like they try and survive. It keeps, it's still eating cities out there, so, you know, uh, go loot the eaten city. And it's, it's, a, and it like, the, all the game's mechanics are tailored to living inside this hellish environment, uh, and it works really well. So, like, when's that, the Savage Worlds edition coming out? <laughs> yeah, uh, I don't think they hit that stretch, stretch goal. Oh, uh, you know, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, so I think as a new game designer, you're going to get a lot more hype if you do like, here's a cool game about this really cool idea, and there's unique mechanics to support and, it. And it does that. It presents that idea. Yeah, um, the um, I wanted to. I wanted to get to your. He, before I go off on this tangent, yeah, yeah. bear with me a second. The uh, my two cents on the the how much do you tell people about your game in the first pages thing, um, uh, is is not much. I mean, I don't think you need to. You know, even how much how much time did Gary Gygax spend in white box D and D saying what is a role playing game? And yeah. here we all are. You know. Um, Maybe maybe a couple of paragraphs on this is a role playing game. In a role playing game, you play a role. You yeah. Know? Here's a here's the rules for playing a role, and and you're kind of you're kind of done to my mind. You know, I don't think you need to worry a lot. I certainly wouldn't worry about like trying to compare with existing properties. You know, and telling people my game plays like this game, but not like that game, because. You always, that's, like, no, that's a no-win situation. De- you yeah. always end up like coming up short. Yeah, yeah, and you're depending. You're there. You're depending on the players to know what the hell those are, right? So you're yeah. you're making that paragraph less useless or less useful. And um, and and number two, you know, five years from now, your game may be a smash hit, and half of those games may be out of print or just sort of winnowed down to long tail POD, and nobody's going to have any frame of reference. You know, it's so it's a it's a kind of dated thing. You know, the, the first mm-hmm. edition of Godlike, our World War II game, um, uh, the author, D- uh, Dennis Detweller, you know well, um, he, he spent like three or four pages, basically, just bitching and moaning about things that were all the rage in Vampire the Masquerade, you know, <laughs> at that era, right? Oh, the 90s. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this was, this was in 2000 when he was writing, 2001 when he was writing this, you know, so this stuff was really happening. That was at its peak, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, um, right. But 
five years later, you know, that that that's that felt a little a little a little sketchy. Like that, I kind of want to read it now, just to see. Uh, it's in the old, old hardback. So. I, I would like to comment, um, go, go back a little bit. So it seems like a lot of these questions have been about like, what do our customers want? Yeah, and I would say writing role playing games is not a business. We're a cottage industry at best, <laughs> right? Like, very few people are going to make any money, let alone real money writing role-playing games. So if you're doing it, you're doing it for the love of the game, right? Like, if you're going to commit, and if you're going to pull it off, you're going to have to put in a lot of blood, sweat, and tears to make it happen. And that's only going to be worth it if it's worth it to you. You can't be chasing some target that someone says is like, this is the demographic today, and that's the demographic tomorrow. And if you do just that thing, you're going to sell 10,000 copies, and everyone's going to think you're the greatest thing. Um, so you have to be able to get through the dark nights of writing thousands of words all by yourself, hoping that someone will play it, because you love what you're writing. So as much as you want to write to a demographic and write so that they understand it, you also, probably more importantly, have to write so that you love it. And that, right? that's, that's what's going to sell it, right? I mean, if, if you're writing something that you're not passionate about and that doesn't resonate with you, or creating a game that doesn't just sort of really click with you, why in the world would it click with anybody else? You know, so um, I mean, you, the, the 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 sad fact is, working in, in role playing game design or board game design or, or any, you know anything else, especially RPGs, though, you're working in the arts, right? So yeah. welcome to welcome to the world of working in the arts, which is your most likely career trajectory is years and years and years of starvation and depending like a leech on everyone around you to support you, you know, until something that you do clicks. And you can make a living at it, right? Yeah. That's, that's best case scenario, you know. Um, if you're one in maybe ten million, you know, one once in a generation, a slayer is born who actually writes a design and it's a hit out of the gate, and then they're world famous, and then the rest of them hate that person's. The rest of us hate that person's guts. I would imagine your lives. chances of playing for the NBA or the NFL yeah. are probably higher. Right, than right. Being <laughs> self-sufficient. Yeah, yeah. Player. So, so yeah. So, so the marketing issues. I mean, it's it's well, you've got to re- you've got to really discipline yourself to to not entirely ignore them, yeah. but to not get get so lost chasing them that you lose track of what's really going to sell yeah, your feedback. work. If someone yeah. says this is a really dumb idea, listen carefully and sure. and check, make sure that either you really believe in it or that you modify it, mm-hmm. but you still have to honor your your vision. Uh, questions? Uh, anyone we haven't heard from yet? Uh, or anyone. Uh, so I can. Um, what was I thinking about? Oh yeah, go ahead. Uh, not really related to game design, but uh, when is I'm blanking on the name of the your architectural horror game? Mine. Uh, yeah. When? Yeah. Is, when can we get access to that? Uh, Ruin. Well, I have an outline for it, so you know I need to. I need to actually write it. Um, I can talk a little about what the outline is if you want. Uh, all right, so uh, Ruin is the thing I've been chasing for years, and the, the theme was architectural horror, and that's like things like movies like The Shining, books like House of Leaves, uh, video games like Silent Hill, uh, things about weird places and like how they uh, movies like Grave Encounters and Grave Encounters Two, uh, which are underrated, um, and yeah, that architecture itself is an art, yeah, it's an, an emotional expression, yeah. Emotions can be haunted. It yeah. can be fucked up just by yeah. Yeah. Are, uh, are, we, are we cursing on this podcast? Oh yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, I don't give a shit. Uh, I don't. I don't really edit either because right. the effort. Um, 
So, uh, I've run several games in RPPR actual play based on this idea of architectural horror. Um, trying to experiment, trying to figure out what, what I wanted to do. And, uh, you know, one interesting thing I've seen about tabletop role-playing games is that, you know, obviously video games steal from tabletop games all the time, and then people accuse it of vice versa. And it, 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 it's interesting to me. So... Uh, but one thing I see in you know video games is they come up with their own essential rule set. They come up with their own engine or, and um, to describe how combat works and how uh, characters are designed, what kind of attributes they have. Uh, but they don't do that to make all kinds of video games. They do that. They come up. They basically start from scratch for each video game. You know, there's. I mean, there may be some shared basic physics and stuff like that. But like, you know, if you're playing Spec Ops: The Line, like it has combat and all that stuff, but it will work different than in Call of Duty or whatever. Um, so I kind of wanted to make a game that's crafted. It's going to be one story, and it's but there's an entire rule set for making characters and for combat and everything else uh, to tell that one story. So Ruin, the way I see it is that it's a, the first. It's going to be three games actually. Uh, each one will be a separate book, and I haven't figured out if I'm going to do one Kickstarter or three Kickstarters. Um, or one, yeah, one Kickstarter with stretch goals, and then or three Kickstarters. Uh, but the first game is you go to this sleepy Zena, just a standard, you know, two star hotel up by the side of the highway. And when you wake up, all when you look out the window, it's just a black void, and all the doors are not only locked, they're indestructible. You and all the w- outer windows and walls are indestructible. You Grave cannot, encounters. huh? Grave yeah, kind of like that. And then you know, you start finding other people who are trapped in the hotel. And then you open a door, and it just leads to some place that it cannot possibly be. It's like at the top of a skyscraper or, like, a garden. And, you know, it gets weirder and weirder. And so the first game is all about survival. It's survival horror. The base, it's a story of, like, you're trapped in this weird structure, and you want to escape. Um, and all the mechanics, all the game mechanics will be about that. There will be, And there will also be, like, video games. Like, one thing I like in video games, good ones, is that they have a tutorial level that will, like, you generate your character as you play, and you sort of, like, it shows you the mechanics as you play them. So, you know, it'll be, like, you don't just... Because a lot of role, tabletop role-playing games, how many times have you played a game where uh, you make a character, and then you, like, five sessions in, you, you haven't used half your skills? You know, like, oh, that point of archaeology never came up, you know, uh, in a uh, gumshoe game or whatever. And so I want players to only be able to allocate, you know, their character attributes when they actually use them and that's how they're defined is what they actually do in the game um, and what architectural school does that represent? Uh, <laughs> brutalism it's all brutalism <laughs> um, all the way down you're uh, all so ugly well I mean the thing about you're archi- all equally ugly therefore none of you are ugly exactly uh, so architecture well, none of you are pretty <laughs> right no architecture is about hum- how humans modify place in order to have purpose um, and how place modifies humans, how it changes their, our emotions and our senses uh, by changing, you know, churches are built with very high ceilings to give us a sense of awe, you know, uh, and that kind of thing. This place has a particular architecture so we can all have meeting spaces that aren't too intrusive of each other. A different uh, kind of awe. Yeah, yeah, right. exactly. Um, and so that will be game one. And then uh, also, I, I, I'm very interested in like how people replay story video games over and over again to learn new things about what happened. Uh, so I like the idea of not like getting everything from a campaign 
by playing it once. I like the idea of replaying it with the knowledge you've learned as a person, you can then apply that in the game. So game two is you're back in the, the structure, the hotel, but it, you know, you know that what it is. And so that knowledge gives you new advantages, but then you start meeting groups of people. And then uh, in the second game, there will be an antagonist, a villain who wants to stop you. And so the, the second game is about learning what the structure really is and trying to like get to the heart of the structure. And the antagonist is trying to stop you. Um, and then, the third game, assuming you defeat the antagonist, you get to the heart of the structure, you understand what it is, you've learned enough knowledge about the structure to build on the structure, to, to modify it, to, to connect the structure back to reality or to other realities. Uh, and then you have this chance, then it's about like, I now have power over the structure to a degree, but now other people covet it and want it. So what do you do? What do you build? Do you try and destroy the structure so that it can't threaten anyone again? Do you try and use its power for your the betterment of humanity or for just for yourself? And then uh, how are you going to stop those other people from stealing what you have? And are you going to like recruit other people to you know turn them into cannon fodder? Are you going to you know uh, that kind of thing? So each game will build on the previous games, but have new mechanics. And, you know, like a, pro- a deadly problem in the first game will be just finding food and water, you know, because there's, uh, but in the second game, you'll be able to easily find food and water, but now there's new problems for you to deal with. Um, so that's, that's the outline, basically. Um, and uh, hopefully I can turn that into a game. Uh, awesome. Yeah. Uh, so that, that's the basic sense of it. Um, and I'm going to experiment with ideas. Like, I like the idea of, like, changing the game mechanics itself. Like the GM will be able to choose different rule sets to describe the behavior of the the the, the structure, the ruin itself, uh, and then like having it like oh we're it's a percent like being a real dick as a GM uh, in the sense like uh, teaching players okay this is a percentile skill based system and then when they walk in a new area they roll the percentile oh you automatically fail why because now it uses a d6 uh, and shit like that so just changing the game mechanics itself and then like. Then once the players learn this, they go into new areas, and the and the player asks, "Which dice are you rolling?" Like, wait, what do you mean? I'm not going to tell you which one is. If you if you roll the wrong type of dice, it's just not going to work. You're not in the right reality at this moment. So, uh, so meta. yeah. Uh, so uh, those are some of the ideas I'm playing around with. I'm uh, like changing the character sheet itself uh, or replacing the character sheet. Um, there's a lot of ideas I'm uh, experimenting with, so uh, I'm going to be working on that when I get back. So yay! So that's that's the idea for Ruin. But yeah, I, I I now have it in a form that can be written. It's not just House of Leaves, but different. Um, so yay me, I guess. So yeah, uh, yeah, in the back. Well, so a lot of the description sounded almost like a board game. Have you considered looking at that approach instead of an RPG? Yeah, but I want to do an RPG. Um, <laughs> and it's you gotta love it, right? The thing, how, the how thing is, it's going to be heavily customizable by the GM. So, like, I'm going to describe like the basic behavior of how the structure, the the haunted building or whatever it is, works. But like, then the GM would be like, "Here's you can have the doors. Every single door in the hotel can open up to anywhere you want." So you could have, you know, they open up into their own past, or it opens up into space, but you can breathe somehow, or maybe not. You know, it's a death trap. Um, 
And so it's it's still going to be a story based game. I'm also going to have like the options where maybe it's a crucible, like Silent Hills, like you're being punished for your past sins, or maybe the the structure itself is alive and it feeds on your pain and suffering, or maybe it's just this weird. Maybe it's just Cthulhu's dream. You're in Cthulhu's dream. It has physical form, and you're just trying to get out of his you know his brain fart essentially. Um, and so it's still going to be a story. Uh, based role like playing it, game. it's going to take an interesting sort of balancing act to balance how much of how much of what's happening at the table is player decisions versus character decisions. You know? Yeah, I mean, if you're in a board game, it's all just what do the players want to do and what yeah. do they choose, and you're not thinking trying to think through the head of some other person. Yeah. as you would in an RPG. A lot of it's going to come down, yeah, like choices. Like the idea, like uh, the main thing is there are going to be certain junction points where the players they have to decide what they're going to do with their characters and like. In the first game, one of the first choices: it, Do I? What am I? Go, what is my goal? Am I just trying to get out, or I'm going to try and figure out what I'm going to do, or figure out what what the mystery of this place is? In the first game, you're just going to like maybe you you eventually there will be limited supplies. You won't maybe uh, maybe if you make that choice to try and learn what what's going on, you're just going to starve to death before you find it. Um, so. Um, that's yeah. That so yeah. It's still in a very early stage, but I'm, I, I yeah. Sorry. So uh, just just to clarify. Yeah. You're throwing out a lot of different ideas. Is is there one through story that you want to have, or do you want it to be kind of the GM can decide? Uh, the the main the the story is basically a three act thing. The first act is a person wakes up in this structure, this n- impossible building, and they escape. They get back to normal reality. In the second act, they they return. Uh, for a personal reason, maybe they they they're going man. They you know they don't know what what's real, what's not anymore. Maybe they realize the structure has magical power, so maybe they need that power to you know maybe heal someone that they love from a deadly disease, or maybe they want immortality, or maybe they want to understand something about themselves. So for whatever reason, they return and try and understand what the structure really is. The third act, they've understood the structure. They now have the power to modify the structure. And then they have to decide what they're going to do with the structure. Are they going to try and control it? Are they going to try and destroy it? Um, what are they? Going to, and other people are trying to exploit it as well. So uh, it's the final fate of the structure itself. So that's it. That's the the basic story. And then the GM can customize what the structure really is, who the villains are, and you know what what uh, yeah, things like that. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and also, if you read all the books and your GM is just changing the and options to totally customize it on your own. Uh, yeah. Yes. Um, so that seems so specifically to your game. I guess there's a little more general question there as well. So this seems like a game that it's probably supposed to be either it's almost like three mini campaigns almost. Um, and how do you how do you design? Mechanics. So, say like rather than you, you don't really want to run three campaigns, you just want to run like three one shots. How do you design mechanics that can support both campaigns and one shots, or do you do that at all? Uh, the first game will definitely be uh, options to do it as a one shot because um, it's just a basic scenario. You're trapped in this place and you need to get out. Um, and then, you know, you can expand that. Like, that could be one, you know, think about, you know, a person's on the desert island, they want to get off. That could be a movie like Castaway, uh, or it could be a TV show like Lost. Um, and so there, there'll be options for both. So for the second and third games, I don't know if I'll, I'll be able to make it into a one-shot, uh, but I'll probably learn and modify my plans after I finish the first game. So I'm uh, the basic, the goal for me right now is to write game one, which is you're trapped in this place and you want to get out. And then 
put in the hooks for book two and three uh, in there, but then after I write book one, I'm sure I'm going to modify my plans. Uh, yeah. I mean, as, yeah. as a, just as a general thing, um, if, 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 you, if you make a game and people can't have fun after playing it for only three hours, then I feel like that game's missing something. Yeah. Right? Um, I, I feel like you ought to be able to play any role-playing game with only one session and come away from it thinking, yeah, that was awesome, and not feel like, oh, that would have been awesome if only we'd come back three or four more weeks, you know? Yeah, that, so, that's a good I don't point. Know that, I don't know if that, I mean, that may sound a little too snippy, but... Um, but uh, I would say well, it's probably if you're not having fun in the first half an hour. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Honestly, and and that's and there's a lot of games that that a lot of a lot a lot of games that fail that test horribly well, I would, because I would, they assume that if you're there to play, all your you know all your buddies are with you and they're bringing the fun, so you're all going to suffer through the trauma of character creation and all this ridiculous <laughs> math together, and then you're gonna and you're gonna know where it's going to be fun later, and then you can start having the fun then. Well, I think fairly a lot of that weight goes on the GM. Like even though the poor, most poorly designed game with a strong GM can be fun. Um, but, but, the, but the less weight you can put on that yeah, one person, exactly. the better. But you yeah. can't write you can't write that in so that a, a GM who is insistent on making the first three sessions boring is not going to. Well, succeed. yeah, <laughs> that's right. Um, I'm, I'm sorry, Ross. I've got a, yeah. a session I have to go run oh, yeah. upwind actually um, at two o'clock. Sure. Thank you for indulging yeah. me and, and for your questions. Are all of your upwind sessions booked or are you taking? I've got one more session. Um, I'm going over there, straight across the street. It's booked, but. Right. Invariably, people don't show up, so maybe there'll be a spot right. if you're interested. Yeah, you, you thank you. Yeah. Good to see you, Jeff. Yeah. Did everybody get an upwind? Uh, Anybody uh, need postcard? an upwind card? Yeah, I'll remind I'll you to check up. it out. I'll leave them up here. All right. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we only have a few minutes anyway. Unless yeah. Somebody, yeah. yeah. Uh, are you writing that to like a traditional party-based RPG? Yeah. Are you have you considered the uh, the kind of two-player game market where you have a? Deal uh, I did get Cthulhu Confidential. I'm going to read through that and see what Robin Laws wrote about that and steal if it's really good. Uh, steal. I mean. But, uh, no, totally original. I'm be, be inspired. Be by. inspired by. <laughs> yeah. uh, and co- coincidentally, I mean, I wrote it so it could be. Po- I'm primarily focused on the traditional trope, like you're a band of people who are trapped in this. And then in the second game, you've all bonded because you survived this horrific thing. And now... Literally murder hobos. Yeah. Uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, and then in the third game, you're, you're you know, you, again, you're bonded through that common ex- the experience. So, um, yeah. I, I, I mean, yeah. I'd have, I, I kind of want to read Cthulhu Confidential to see what the differences are. Like, wait. Uh, you're familiar with Scoundrel the Dark. The, the, which one? The Scoundrel the Dark. Sorry, Scoundrel the Dark. Yeah, yeah. No, I sympathize. <laughs> Um, yeah. Are you do? Is someone? Is there so, something in this room next? Oh. Uh, yeah. At two. Okay. All right. So we have time for one more question. Uh, was there a question in the back? Or can I keep answering? Uh, oh yes. I, it's kind of a weird question. Um, could you talk a little bit about? Uh, see, we've all talked about. You're all talking about your project that we as well. Can you talk a little bit about failure and the idea like you've got to love this thing, but you also need to be able to sometimes. And not like the whole thing of giving up writing RPGs, but being like, 
you know, I've been banging on this thing for, you know, a couple thousand words. It's not working out. Do you have any advice on what you're like? Yeah, that's life. I mean, that, yeah. you plan, plan for that. I mean, that. That's my advice is plan for that and don't let that discourage you. Yeah. yeah. I guarantee you if you spend any time at all writing, writing anything, mm-hmm. but especially game design because you've got so many intersecting approaches and disciplines that you have to deal with that you're going to hit brick walls and you're going to realize that something that sounded really amazing a couple of months ago um, has run out of steam in your head and it just won't come back. And so... Yeah, I mean, my it my hard drive is filled with yeah, same. like files that are three pages long. Um, I designed a card game last year, and then I play tested it here at Gen Con last year, and then it's like, oh, I ripped off Munchkin, and it's not as good as Munchkin. So, well, that's that. So <laughs> your, your your marketing line is like Munchkin, but not quite as fun. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, it had a great title, Steel Dracula's Gold, but other than that, I couldn't like. No, nope, this is just. Munchkin uh, with Castlevania stuff ripped off. Uh, so yeah, that's all we have time for, I believe. Uh, thank you so much. Uh, thank you, Avatar.